the idea of a stand down as is legislated at the moment is to handle a an event that impacts a business that is outside of the business owner's control that stops normal business from happening either for a department or for the whole company for a period of time you're listening to australia's podcast for accountants tax talks the podcast to grow your firm Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Text Talks, update number 11. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Before we start, may I just quickly talk to you about something else we discussed in the last update about the JobKeeper payment. I had asked Andrew whether GST-free export is included in the definition of GST turnover for the JobKeeper payment. So is a slump in exports included in your calculation to show a 30% drop in turnover? And Andrew's answer is yes, it is included. My understanding was that GST turnover excludes supplies that are not connected with Australia, which my understanding was that was different to a to not exactly the same as a GST free export because that could still be connected with Australia despite oh, okay. being GST free. I, I my understanding, and I'm preface it with that I'm, I'm not 100% sure on this, is that the exclusions are more things that completely happen outside of Australia and have no, no, you might have a business in Australia that has some operations overseas that supply overseas customers and those things would be exempt. What I'm hearing is that is that where you've sort of got, let's say, Australian-based business that does provide some services to foreign entities, I believe that those are included. And Andrew is right. This insert is just to confirm that Andrew is right. You might remember Simon Dorovich, who spoke about GST-related topics last year on Tax Talks from the indirect tax zone, export of goods and income terms of services connected with the indirect tax zone, to more recently taxable importations in episode 190, low value imported goods, 194, Netflix tax, 197, and then electronic distribution platforms in episode 207. So Simon knows GST. And Simon very kindly writes, I was just listening to your latest episode with Andrew Henshaw and the topic of GST turnover came up. Suppliers that are GST-free, for example exports, are included but suppliers that are not connected with Australia are excluded. So a slump in GST-free exports will go into your turnover test for the JobKeeper payment. And then Simon refers to the example we used. With your example of an eBay who sells goods to customers overseas, so if you are an eBay seller and a lot of your sales go overseas mm. and hence they are a GST-free export, you might still qualify yeah, because I, that turnover is included. Yeah, I believe so that they're generally included and I understand that it's only really input taxed supplies that are excluded. With your example of an eBay who sells goods to customers overseas, the suppliers will be connected with Australia because they involve goods being taken out of Australia but will probably be a GST-free export. Therefore, those suppliers are counted. But it depends on the Inca terms. So the only turnover you exclude from your turnover test, putting GST groups aside, are input tax supplies, 
as well as supplies not connected with Australia. Everything else is included, including GST-free exports. And one more thing. Zero has a calculator now where you can check your eligibility for JobKeeper. You just go to activity statements and then at the very top it gives you a calculator. But it only allows you to test per month at the moment, not per quarter. And then if you run this test and you have a 30% drop in monthly turnover from March or April or later months whenever you have this drop, you can then send this information to the ATO directly through Zero at the click of a button. And sorry, there's still something else. The ATO has extended the time to enroll for the JobKeeper payments. To enroll for the first two fortnights of JobKeeper payments in April, it is no longer the 30th of April 2020. The deadline is no longer the 30th of April 2020, but it is now the 31st of May 2020. So you have an entire month to still enroll for the JobKeeper payments. And that is good news. But even if you enroll after the 30th of April, you still need to have paid the first two lots of $1,500 before the end of April. So you can enroll later, but you can't pay later. You can't pay later than the 30th of April, but of course only if you want to claim the JobKeeper for April. If you want to claim the JobKeeper from May onwards, then of course you have until May to make the payments. And sorry, one quick correction. You actually have until the 8th of May to pay. So you need to pay the first JobKeeper fortnights by the 8th of May. But you have until the 31st of May to actually enroll for the JobKeeper payments. But now to the actual topic for today. Employment law before and during COVID-19. What happened to all those employment contracts when we went into lockdown? That is the question I want to explore with you over the next two updates. In this update, let's look at employment law as it stood before COVID-19. What rules generally apply? And then in the next update, let's look at how this employment law changed under COVID-19. So in this episode, Damien Gooden of HR Central will walk you through Australia's general employment law. My first question to Damien is, what did employment law look like? before COVID-19. Before COVID-19, there was a lot of reliance on the instruments that make up our employment environment. And they basically, on a, on a case-by-case basis, would be the contract. And then the contract um, would refer to either a, an enterprise agreement that is specific to that organisation or an award most times. And then the, the legislation sits behind all that. So there's sort of three levels of terms, I guess, that people employed under in the, under normal circumstances. So when we talk about hourly rates, the rates are set based on the award and based on where inside that award your skill set lies. In a retail award, there might be eight different levels, depending on how skilled you are and how qualified you are and what experience you have. And then based on what level you're at, then there's a rate of pay for that. And then there's different rates of pay for normal hours, ordinary hours that they're called, and then different, again, for the weekends and overtime and, and different things and different duties that potentially could have allowances and all these sorts of things. And that's all prescribed in, in, in the awards or in the enterprise agreements. Looking at this, the enterprise agreement is per business. So it usually is just relevant for really large businesses like BHP or ANZ, etc. Then the awards are per industry, I assume. And then in addition, you would have 
companies that are neither covered by an enterprise agreement nor covered by an award and then just general legislation would kick in including the minimum wage correct that's right yeah so there's 122 different modern awards uh, and they can be very complicated documents there there's a lot of detail in there um, there's a lot of legalese in there it's very difficult for small business owners in particular to navigate these sorts of documents uh, to make sure that they're paying uh, the right levels for a start. How do I classify someone? What award should they be under? And then what level within that award? And then once I know that, if I know that, then what hours they work, what which of those hours are paid at which rate? You know, yeah. It gets complicated when you talk about shift work and overtime and things like that. When you look at the 129 awards, would you think that they cover... 99% of employees, are there very, very few employees who wouldn't be covered by an award or are there large sections of the economy that are not covered by an award? For the most part, people would be covered by an award. Yeah, there's some, there's some odd circumstances where people would be referred to as award-free. Also, there's cases where if people are paid above a certain amount, they sort of fall outside the awards as well. So there's a few differences, but most of the time, from a small business point of view, generally they would be covered by one or more awards. And it's important to note that the award is based on the role, not the business. So you might have different people working in very disparate roles within the same business, and those people need to be paid under different awards. So one small business might have to deal with four or five or six different awards if they have different parts of the business or very different roles within their employees. Yeah, absolutely. So think about, say, like a health and wellness venue that has a cafe and a restaurant. So they have their practitioners, so they the spa therapists or the massagists or beauty therapists or those sorts of things doing treatments, but then they have people in the kitchen under the restaurant award, and then they might have people in the cafe under a different award again. So you've got different people performing very disparate roles under different awards. There's an award for retail employees, there's an award for mining workers. Do you have awards for clear office workers, so for example, a digital agency, would they be covered by an award? Well, it sort of depends. There's a couple of key awards that sort of office-bound people would fall under. The clerk's award is one, and what that sort of covers your administration-type people. So people that are working reception and those sorts of things, people that are doing, you know, maybe finance administration or office administration, those sorts of things would fall under the clerk's award. There's also the professional employees award. So if you're looking at highly skilled professionals, they would fall under that, that award. So IT professionals and those sorts of things would be down that path. So your digital designers and those sorts of things would probably fall under that award. You mentioned that once somebody is paid a certain amount, they fall out of the award. What's usually the cutoff salary that people fall out of an award? It's $148,700. And is that across all awards or just each award has a different threshold? That's a, a high income threshold that's set by the Fair Work Commission, specifically around unfair dismissals. So if you are employed and you earn more than that, you actually can't make an unfair dismissal claim. In an unfair dismissal claim, there's jurisdictional issues that can be raised. Um, generally, anyone who makes an unfair dismissal claim has 28 days to make that claim. And if the claim is outside that period, then the business can make a jurisdiction, take jurisdictional issue and say, well, we shouldn't have to answer this because you've taken too long. And that, that salary figure is 
to civil society. Once you're beyond 148,000, you're no longer covered by an award. So then it goes just purely to the contract and then just general legislation. You would still be looking at the terms of the award if they're in a particular industry, but the, certainly the pay guides would be out the window at that rate. Do you find that a lot of small businesses are not even aware of the awards and just pay whatever they agree? Absolutely. And it's a big problem. We have people who go to the pub, talk to someone and say, I, I employed a bloke for 25 bucks an hour. And they said, well, I'll, I'll pay that too. That's not the right place to get that information. People doing handshake agreements and, and those sorts of things just can't be that way. Unfortunately, uh, people have been caught out in small business and the Fair Work Ombudsman has been very public in, in naming and shaming businesses that have underpaid people. We've seen plenty of it over the last little while. So it is imperative that business owners make sure they get the right information and they keep that information up to date because things change all the time, right? People's birthdays may change their rate, particularly if they're under 21. Any experience people have, so potentially they gain an extra qualification, that might change their rate. If they uh, take on additional duties, that could change their rate. If they work at different times, they could change their rate. So there's lots of different things that happen. Even the length of people's employment can change their, their rate. So all these different things need to be continually referred back to. It's not like, okay, we bring you on, this is what you get paid and it never changes. The award rates are reviewed every year. And uh, as a result of that, your rates may need to be updated at the same time. You know, just as an example, let's assume a retail business pays their store manager $19 an hour. I do assume that that probably is below the award. What could happen? I mean, I assume probably nothing will happen because the employee probably will just resign one day, but will not lodge a claim. But worst case scenario, what could happen to the um, business owner and what could happen to the best agent who prepares and deals with the payroll and what could happen to the tax agent or accountant who, who prepares the tax return and knows of this setup? A term that's been banned around called vicarious liability. Basically, what the government is trying to say is that if you or a reasonable person would have known that something was wrong, then you are basically going to be found to be at fault and penalised. So the definitely the best agent, possibly also the tax agent, could be liable for underpayment? Certainly the BAS agent. We've seen cases of that, or even not even BAS agents, payroll, people performing payroll, whether they're BAS agents or not, have felt the wrath of fair work in this case. Particularly, they come down exceptionally hard on businesses the second or future times that they infringe. So oftentimes, if people are trying to do the right thing and they make a mistake, there's not a huge penalty for that. The idea is that they want people to get their houses in order and they want to make sure that people are getting what they're, what they're owed and what they deserve which is fair. But if you get back in front of the fair work again the second time, they will come at you very hard, particularly if it can be proven that you are doing deceptive behaviour or intentionally underpaying people. And that would apply to the business owner, correct? All directors, sometimes the payroll people in the company, sometimes the HR people in the company, sometimes the BAS agents. So anyone who, who is part of it, if the fair work can include them and punish them, they will you kind of get away with it once and then you just have to pay the outstanding salary that you should have paid in the first place. But if you do it again, then substantial penalties will hit you. Is that a fair comment? I wouldn't say you get away with it. You'll be put on notice. And mm -hmm. if, if you're found to have not done it correctly once, they will come and check again. And if they find that when you, after they tell you what you need to fix, if you haven't fixed it, they will make sure that you know that they are serious. And rightly so, because 
It's actually not that hard to do. It just needs to be done. Hourly rates yep. are set by enterprise agreements, by awards, or in the very rare case that somebody is not covered by an award, they would be set just by contract and covered by legislation. And when I say hourly rate, of course, it could also be weekly salary, monthly salary, annually salary, whatever is agreed with respect to compensation. I assume the same applies to hours worked, the same applies to paid leave, correct? All these things come under the same bracket. The, the, those instruments that are there outline the terms of employment, including the, the rate, the hours, what leave entitlements you have, those sorts of things, what, you, what your duties are, usually using there as well. The, the sort of the rules around terminations and redundancies and, and changing to casual are not so much award specific, but general terms across national employment standards and across fair work to say, if you want to make a change to someone's role, well, you need to have a good reason to do that. So if you're talking about changing someone from permanent to casual, well, there's a couple of different things about that. One is if there's a downturn or you have a situation where the fixed hours are no longer suitable for the business, you can come to an agreement with an employee to change their working method or their working style pretty much at any time. Let's end this old contract and let's start a new one as a casual. And what happens if the employee doesn't agree to it? Well, then you, you can't make an agreement. So if you were to go down that path, what you would actually need to do is to make the position redundant. So yeah. the permanent position that the, that the person is in, if that position is redundant, insofar as that there is no requirement for someone to perform those duties and tasks that that role encompasses as a role, then that role can be deemed to be redundant. Now, what you would need to do if you're going down the redundancy path is to prove that there is no other place in the business where you could repurpose the actual employee who's filling that role. So it's, it's one thing to say that the role's redundant in that we don't have the requirement to have anyone to fulfil this role. The second element is how can we have this employee that we have who no longer has a role, how can we repurpose them in the business? So can we repurpose them in a different department or could they work as a casual or could they work, is this a short-term measure and we could put them on leave for a certain period? Or any, you need to really talk to your employee and say, well, how else could we keep you in the business? And sometimes there's no way that's suitable for both parties to maintain that relationship. And then that person would be terminated based on the fact that their role was made redundant. What's the notice period for a redundancy? Well, notice period is different to different to different how fast you can do it. You can do it. You can do it as fast as you like. For example, if I had a big contract with uh, a certain company and they and we lost the contract for some reason, the employees who were on that contract could arguably have their positions be made redundant because that con we don't have that contract anymore. So we don't need anyone to do that work anymore in the blink of an eye. So an employer could tell their employees on Friday evening that or on Thursday evening that they don't need to come back on Friday because the contract has been lost? Well, if they do that, then you have to look at the redundancy process. And the first, as I sort of mentioned before, you need to look at you know, is this position and the duties and, and, and role that this performed, is that actually not required anymore? That's the first box you've got to tick. Then the second thing is, can we repurpose these people in the business, either with reduced hours or going to part-time or going to, to a different department or working on a different project and those sorts of things. And if you still get to all that, then potentially you could terminate someone based on their role being made redundant. Now, if you get to that point, then there's a redundancy payout. And notice is part of that. So your notice 
periods could be anywhere between one and five weeks. And you would either work that period, if you could, or be paid in lieu of that notice. And that's in addition to being paid your entitlements and potentially a redundancy payout, depending on the company and other things like that. So an employee would only have been made redundant if it followed the proper process. They were paid out any accrued annual leave and they were given a notice, etc. And the notice period had been observed, etc. But if they were just told, don't come back on Monday, then very likely they weren't made redundant, but they just stood down. That's right. Yeah. I would expect you would, you would get a termination letter if you're made redundant. Because yes. it's actually, you don't, you're not made redundant, your position is made redundant and you're terminated as a result of your position being made redundant. And how does termination yeah. work? So I still need that role, but I'm not happy with the person who is fulfilling the role and I want to put somebody else into the role. How does that work? Is there kind of a three-strike warning or something similar? I think the most important thing to think about when terminating people is to think about the conversation that you might have with someone that you care about, a sibling or a parent or a friend, and think about if they told the story to you of what happened to them, how would you feel as far as what level of reasonableness has been to that situation? So how reasonable is it that that situation occurred? So take, for example, I come to you and I say, I got fired today. And my friend says, what, what, why'd you get fired? You say, well, I don't know. They just fired me. I got a letter that said I'm terminated and I don't know why. Put that on the other hand of someone who's, who I just come to you and I say, I got fired today. And they say, what happened? I say, well, apparently I wasn't very good at completing my reports on time. And my friend says, so what do you mean by that? And they said, well, they, they gave me all these warnings and they told me and they showed me how to do the reports and I still didn't do it. And then I still didn't put my reports in. And then they gave me a letter today saying I've been terminated because I didn't I didn't fill in all my reports. And my friend would probably say to me, why didn't you fill in your reports? Mm. You know what I mean? So if you think of that as a friend or as a colleague or as a sibling to someone, is it pretty reasonable the, the approach that someone's taken or is it seem, it, does it seem harsh? Mm. Uh, and I think that the first one's really harsh. If you just get a letter one day with no, no meeting, no warning, no discussion, you're terminated. That's pretty harsh. That's not very reasonable and it seems unfair. On the other hand, if you're in a situation where you've been through the process of someone telling you about the problem, someone giving you a warning about the problem, someone telling you how to fix the problem, coaching, training, you know, reminding, support, and then you still don't make the changes, then I think it's pretty reasonable that someone's terminated because, you know, as an employer, you do have some rights and part of those rights is for your staff or your team members to perform any reasonable action that, uh, that you give them. So I think in termination, the main thing, it's not about how many warnings or how many certain things. You've got to take each situation on its merits in the context of the business, in the context of the landscape around it. So, you know, this one person and their issue or issues has to be taken into account in their personal world, in their team, in the whole company, and then the company's sphere of, of employment. And I think... People get concerned about, oh, how, I can't terminate someone. Well, let's see if you have a good reason and can you actually articulate that reason to the person so that they understand okay. uh, and then give them an opportunity to, to change. Damien, I think you're very much describing best practice, how it should be done with respect and with consideration of the other person's needs, etc. What just on a pure legal basis do you have to do or not to do? There are a lot of examples 
that say that if you don't give people an opportunity to respond to any grievance that you have, it will probably be deemed to be unfair. I see. Okay, so there is no clear black and white rule. There are just probably a list of definitions of what might be unfair. So it just comes back to this unfair dismissal definition. And I assume there's probably then case law, what is what is fair and what isn't fair, etc. So it just comes to that. There are no hard, fast rules. The challenge with what is fair or just or reasonable is what you think is fair or reasonable and what I think is fair or reasonable is not necessarily the same. So like every legal case, if it got to court, one of the lawyers is going to lose. Someone is going to think it's fair and reasonable and someone's going to think it's not fair and reasonable and half the people lose all the time. It's very difficult to give a clear-cut answer other than to say you have to take the situation and handle it in a way that seems like it would be reasonable to most people. Okay, so it all comes down to fair and reasonable termination. And what that is, is fuzzy and different people would come to different conclusions. So it kind of just comes down to proof and documentation and what exactly happened. And then an assessment probably based on previous case law, as well as just how it looks to, to a reasonable person. Yeah, it's really what, what someone generally is saying is that the dismissal was harsh or unjust or unreasonable. A judge or a mediator or someone is going to make a decision on what they think. And the important part for any business is to make sure that they can take the right steps to get the information that's correct and that they give people a chance to respond to any information that they gather and then that they consider that information before they take their action. So that's how you can ensure that at least you are giving someone a fair hearing, which is, which is paramount in this whole process. Dismissing someone generally without talking to them, even if they've done something that seems to be gross misconduct very clearly and you would think that 99 out of 100 people would think it's gross misconduct, still giving them an opportunity to explain the situation and then going away and taking that information into account before you make your decision would be very prudent in any dismissal. The other thing is a factor at the moment is people who are working as casuals or employed as casuals who are working as part-timers. Don't that you is, find that's very yep. common, that people are paid as casuals but are actually working nine to five every day? Not so much full-time paid as casuals, but certainly part-time on fixed hours. Their, their employment is not casual. It's very much a, a permanent position where they're working the same hours every week. And there's a lot of that. And, and to that end, there was a what's called a casual conversion clause added to many of the awards that said that it is best practice for business owners to every year or even every half a year, if you have people working in this way, to make sure that they confirm that they indeed are casual and they want to remain as a casual, even though their working hours would suggest that they could be a permanent part-time. How quickly do regular hours make you a part-time employee and no longer a casual employee? There's case law that is sort of sculpting our, our thinking on this as we go along, but really it's about the use of rosters is really what it's about. If you every week get a roster and you don't know in that week what you're going to work, that is casual, okay? You have no idea on Sunday what your shifts are going to be for the following week, that is a casual employment. However, if you don't have a roster and you work the same three days for the same amount of hours on each day, that is permanent. Now, there's in between there, there's a lot of different variations of what people work and don't work that could be deemed either way. 
But what my suggestion would be to small business owners is that if someone is working as a casual and they're, and they're not getting a different roster every week, then you should think about making sure that they confirm that they're a casual, just okay. to be sure. If there's no roster, then they are permanent. If there is a roster and the roster changes every week, then they are not permanent. And if there is a roster, yeah. but the roster is pretty consistent every week, then they are permanent. Does it matter if the roster changes? So sometimes they work day shift, sometimes they work the afternoon shift or so, but the number of hours each week are the same, then they would still be considered permanent, correct? Not necessarily. I would look at this as a case of everyone is permanent unless they're casual. How do you prove that someone's casual? And the best way to prove that someone's casual is that each week they don't know what they're going to work. If they know how many hours they are going to work, but they don't know when, whether it's the day shift or the afternoon shift, for example, then they would be casual, correct? Maybe, but I would be, I would be being prudent and taking the steps to make sure that that person confirms with you in writing at least every 12 months that they indeed are casual. If there's like a roster that, that comes out once a quarter and you work the same thing for the whole quarter, that would not be casual. And it's really about defining the people that you are paying as a casual to confirm that they are casual. If it, does, if it looks like in any way that they're not really casual, confirm with them that they are. So an employee can actually, even if they very much look like a permanent employee, they can confirm and agree that they are casual. So even if they're working nine Correct. to five every day, if they don't want to be treated as a permanent employee, they want to be treated as a casual because they get a higher hourly rate, then they can do that. But the employer would need confirmation to be safe because if they don't have confirmation in writing that the employee is happy to be treated as casual, then of course the employee could turn around one day and say, I would please like to have my super and I would please like to have my paid sick leave and annual leave that I wasn't paid for the past five years. That's right. Is the concept of a stand down, is that something new? In short, yes. The idea of a stand down as is legislated at the moment, is to handle a, an event that impacts a business that is outside of the business owner's control, that stops normal business from happening, either for a department or for the whole company, for a period of time. If you talk about, let's say you had a shoe shop and there was a fire that wasn't your fault and the, the, your retail store needed to be rebuilt, that would be another potential case where you could stand down your employees, where they, and a stand down, the stand-down term has been bandied around by a lot of different people. I'm going to stand my people down. Well, a stand-down is actually in the legislation is about this event. And only for the period of the event can you stand people down. And only if you have an event that is impacting your business directly that is not your fault can you do that. Now, the fire in a shoe shop, for example, they take two weeks to re-kit out the inside of the shop. Upon that shop reopening, everyone comes back in exactly the same roles they were in before. And in the meantime, their entitlements have still been accruing, but they just haven't been able to work any hours because the shop has been out of order. So, yes, the, the idea of a stand-down has always been there. The fact that it's been used under COVID-19 situation is different and has different ramifications for different people when they, when they try to do that. I assume that annual leave continues to accrue, that sick leave and long service leave continue to accrue. And that the only thing that is different is that the employees don't work and don't receive salary for that period of stand down. Is that right? That's correct.
if an employee is unfairly treated, what avenues do they have? They would raise their concern with Fair Work and uh, that Fair Work would investigate the claim. Do you think so? Do you, you think know, they really investigate the claim? I don't think they have yeah, the they power yeah, to yeah, investigate they... the claim, do they? Oh, you'd be surprised. I think they look for hot spots. There's no doubt about that. So if multiple complaints from the one employer, you know, they're probably going to do an investigation of that. And there's also avenues for people to make appeals to the fair work. You can lodge a claim for unfair dismissal, for example, and, and that goes through a mediation process before potentially being resolved or going to arbitration. There are avenues that are definitely available for employees. I think the most important thing for employers is to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row and they're getting good advice. In the same way that you get legal advice and you get tax advice, you need to get HR advice. Do you expect a lot of litigation to come out of this? I did. Prior to the JobKeeper legislation, I thought that there would probably be some pretty high-profile cases. There's already a class action against Qantas, I believe, for their the way they've handled personal leave in, in this circumstance. So I expected a lot, but I think that the, the legislation changes have meant that businesses are able to do the things that they need to do to survive and the JobKeeper payments are providing a little bit of something for employees who are, who are stuck. Welcome back. So this was a general overview of employment law in Australia before COVID-19. In the next update, update number 12, Ben Thompson of Employment Hero will look at how this employment law changed under COVID-19. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.